From somewhere deep in the cloud and the corners of the earth, this is the Killing It Podcast with a focus on helping you make sense and dollars of all things IT with your hosts, Dave Sobel, Ryan Morris, and Carl Polichuk. Welcome to episode 142 of the Killing It Killing It podcast. This is Carl, and uh, I'm outside. These guys at least are inside. So, but I'm I'm having Carl's outside oh. in the good weather where it's okay to be outside. <laughs> exactly. Like oh, actually, I'm actually in a place where I can be outside. <laughs> we're, we're testing the theory of you can do a podcast anywhere with Carl out, outside, like just stuck outside. We continue to test. We continue to test. <laughs> exactly. We've we'll, we'll, had many adventures that we continue to have. Jens, before we get into the serious stuff, if you could invent a holiday, what would it be? See, I, I got a, I got a very particular opinion on this. I would invent the holiday Super Bowl Saturday, and we would move the freaking game off of Sunday onto Saturday, and productivity in the working world would skyrocket on the following Monday. You know, everybody's taking that evening and getting blitzed anyway. Why are we doing that on a school night? Come on, people! Super Bowl Saturday. <laughs> That's super smart. That is super smart. <laughs> so, so I would do non-family Friday and it would be the Friday after Thanksgiving. I, I take that off anyway and I give my employees that day off. But it's I, I think you should have a day when you can be completely guilt-free and say, you know, I don't need grandpa, I don't need the in-laws, I don't need Uncle John. <laughs> you have had your fill of them. See, it's funny because I would very I would vary that and I would almost have like the Friday before Thanksgiving as Friendsgiving might be the way like an actual day to do that um, so that you get a little bit of the season of thankfulness versus just the, right. the kind of compacting it. I, I, uh, I went to a Friendsgiving on thir- or on a Sunday this year, and my daughter went to one on Saturday. So, you know, it's a, I think it's a normal thing. I think so, but I want an actual day. See, I want an actual day off for that. <laughs> <laughs> so that I can have my dinner at like 2 p.m., right? And then like eat, hang out, and desserts and the whole thing for the evening. That's the way I want it. And still have room you, for a very long time. I think you should be self-employed, Dave. Funny? I think Funny I solved Dave. that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, are you still using on-prem file servers and VPNs to share files with remote workers? Ignite is a business class cloud sharing solution that works more like your on-prem server than other solutions. With a security-first approach to file sharing and collaboration, Ignite offers multiple options for sharing files and collecting files from outside sources. And do it all addressing data governance and compliance. Want to learn more? Check out ignite.com MSP. And when you do, tell them the guys from Killing It sent you. Alrighty, so our first topic today is uh, is about, you know, again, high tech and the government uh, getting involved. So there is a great potential merger in the books of NVIDIA gobbling up ARM. ARM basically creates a lot of the technology that's used in video chips, video um, systems, and If NVIDIA is allowed to buy them, they would then, the FTC claims, have an advantage over other video card manufacturers. So the question is, A, does that really make a difference? Do we care one way or the other? And B, uh, is this something that's good for the channel or bad for the channel? Personally, 
I think it's kind of good to actually question this and to set some guidelines. I don't think it's good to stop the merger. Oh, I, so it's funny. So I look at this and I say, the only reason in my mind that ARM is for sale is that SoftBank, their investor, wants money back. Like bought it, we'll put a bunch of money in and wants it back. It's a good business. Standalone, it's a good business. It was growing. Right. Like it, 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 it's all good things. The, this is a forced sale because the investors are like, well, I need my money back in three to five years, right? Like this, this is not because of any actual business forces in my mind, other than a bunch of investors put in our set of artificial timelines and they always want their return on these things and they don't like owning things forever. So here we are. Um, and that, that's that sort of artificial bit of forcing the sale. Now, look, I get the need to have investors to grow businesses and to be able to get those outside forces. So it's not like I'm instantly saying like all investors are bad. What I'm sort of saying is this arbitrariness of, well, it's time to get my investment back and we will force this kind of thing, which by the way, then ends up doing bad things to the rest of the market. Because ARM has been viewed as this neutral player that can create the design specs that then other organizations can leverage. That's a good thing. It's driven a ton of innovation, a ton of, of value to them. By the way, if somebody was competing, <coughs> Intel, like if somebody was actually competing here, like, you know, you could actually see a space for competition and such. And so I don't really like it. I'm not a fan of this kind of model. And so I'm totally on board with the FTP, FTC stepping in and doing something about it. See, and, and I think you hit the, the critical element there. This is a financially driven conversation, not a technology driven conversation. And yet it will have significant domino effects on the chip industry. What I find fascinating is that um, this is a real change of fortunes from not too many years ago, right? Uh, there was a time when ARM would have been considered the very big player in this space, and NVIDIA would have been very much the little brother who made chips for video games. Uh, now, the fortunes have reversed. All of the, all of the AI and, and autonomous systems work that NVIDIA has been doing has buffeted them up significantly. They make a ton of money and now they're in a position to be acquiring assets. This, there is absolutely no justifiable technical reason why this asset should be for sale. And if NVIDIA got it, it would create significant unfair competitive advantage. I, I love the technology that NVIDIA is bringing to market. I am a fan of that advancement. I just don't like the idea that somebody who is on the edge of the explosion that's about to happen in the AI-driven chip systems market, like that thing's going to be trillions of dollars as a marketplace. And NVIDIA right at the beginning is about to come in and go, yeah, I'll just take 80% of that share going forward. That's not good for them. Well, uh, I like Dave's point that this, it's not only is it not a technical decision, it's not, it's not even a business decision. It is, it's, it's literally it has to do with these guys wanting to get a chunk of their change back. But in terms of the channel, the channel has been put through the ringer in the last two years with trying to get a hold of chips, trying to build servers. Uh, and, and they've even created video cards that can't be used for data mining so they can't be used for cryptocurrency, right? It's a weird, weird world we're in right now. And ARM actually holds the keys to the future. 
So whether it's NVIDIA or Intel or anybody else, having a piece of that business is huge. And I wonder if they could build a, you know, a firewall between the two companies and say, look, you have to compete uh, with each other. That's, that's happened in other industries as well. Yeah, but not well. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I, and, you know and, and I look at this and say, and by the way, every, I agree with everything you said, except I would also point out the fact that in my mind, ARM is not the reason that we're having any of the problems, nor would the sale of ARM free, it wouldn't fix the supply chain, it wouldn't increase the supply chain, like that is the design versus the manufacturing are two different factors. And I want to make sure that we're not conflating things that aren't related. Um, you know, I mean, I look at this and say, like, look, if somebody else wants to get in the business of designing chips, more power to them, right? Like, I think, I mean, I think this is a, I would say, I want more competition. I don't believe the sale to NVIDIA does that, right? <laughs> I actually think that is likely to lock things up. So, yeah, I'm not a fan. <laughs> this might lead to uh, us returning to this topic and talk more about the, the things that M&A has done to our industry, good and bad, uh, because, you know, making decisions purely on money without regard to business or technology, man, that doesn't seem like long term that that can have good results. No, that doesn't have good results. And especially on channel partners, like you say, Carl, who are trying to build a business on a platform of other people's technologies. We're not the layer of the industry that invents or designs things. We're here to understand them, integrate them, and then go take them to market on the manufacturer's behalf. And when you start mucking with the up channel in our industry, you create more uncertainty and complexity for channel partners than they have the bandwidth to consume. What it would happen, Dave, and to your point, I don't think it would put any constraint physically or resource-wise on the supply chain but I think it would have a direct effect on narrowing the distribution chain because all these solution providers would look at it and go, I just can't handle that kind of complexity in my business. If you're trying to introduce new layers on top of things I already understand, ah, screw it, let's just go with one of them and instead of the others. That's where the unfair competitive advantage would have the biggest impact. Well, we may be revisiting this one because I mean, I, you know, because, because the whole, I want to go into the whole area of, you know, is chip manufacturing a national security issue? Is it a uh, supply constraint bit? Have we learned, what have we learned in the past two years about supply chain as regards to chips, like, and our, and our incredible reliance on it? Like, I feel like we're right at the edge, edge of that whole other discussion today. <laughs> <laughs> but instead, I'm going to pivot us to topic two. Um, and I, I spotted this on Gizmodo, and I'm, I loved the question so much, I felt like it was worthy of asking the, uh, the collective brain trust here. The Giz ask, they do Giz asks, and they ask the question, what will smartphones be like in 10 years? Um, and, and I thought I said, that was just such a fascinating question. Uh, to try and project out 10 years, maybe we'll come back to this episode 10 years from now and see if we get it right. Gents, what say you? What do you think the smartphone will look like in 10 years? Smell-o-vision. See, I think this is an absolutely terrific question because just the other day I was having a conversation with with some friends in the industry, and and what we were talking about was 
go back 10 years from today and ask yourself if you could possibly have imagined what this thing would be. I'm holding up my cell phone for the people who can only hear us on audio. Which is, you know, all of them. <laughs> I've, got this, I've got this rocket science computer that is 99% screen that has more capability than the spaceships that flew to the moon, dot, 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 right? Like, that is the capability we take absolutely for granted in a cell phone today. Ten years ago, I was watching a movie. This is what sparked the conversation. I was watching a movie, and the character flipped open his flip phone and uh, was taking an urgent call on a secure line from the president of the United States on a freaking flip phone. And this was less than 10 years ago that that was happening. And I was like, wow, look how far the industry has come. And those of us that did this stuff for a living, we had no freaking clue. We couldn't have imagined that much. You go forward from here 10 more years, and I'm thinking it's the, like Carl says, right? It's going to be a chip embedded in your head and you'll just be able to think a phone number and you won't need a device because you will be the device. The interesting thing is that uh, phones will probably not be much different in size. Remember when phones were so tiny that you were afraid you'd like lose one inside your ear, right? And, and, and then they got bigger again because we like the interface. We like to actually do things with the phone and have it be big enough to make a difference. And so I, I don't think they'll be much different in size, although I think they'll be integrated with everything you touch. And I personally, I believe there will be a lot of 3D projections and augmented reality. So I think that will be very fun um, as well as useful. I mean, I, you know, Literally, Obi-Wan, you know, you're my only hope. Like, that's what we're going to do in 10 years. All right. So I'm going to I'm going to weigh in then. And I'm actually going to say, I don't think they're going to look at all different. And here's my reasoning. Uh, if I go in the DeLorean and I go back 10 years and I look at laptops, they look the same. And I go back another 10 years from then and I look at a laptop and they look the same. And by the way, if I now get in the DeLorean, I go forward 10 years again so that it's 10 years back from now, right? Keep, keep track of my math. Uh, the iPhone looks kind of the same when it launched as it does now. It's a slab of glass that displays on things. What changed is the dependency on the devices and the way the devices work. So what I, my, my, where my reasoning goes on this is in 10 years, the smartphone will not look any different physically. Your reliance on it, however, may change for exactly the same reason that you may not depend quite as much on your laptop now as you did 10 years ago because, uh, because of the capabilities. I do believe that unless stopped by the carriers or those embedded in, in devices, the idea of ambient computing will be a thing far enough out, meaning the cloud services will tie this all together to all of my devices, and I will probably have something else. I think I, last week I talked about the, the idea of uh, maybe getting a camera in an, Air, Air, uh, an AirPod, right? We're, we're allowing where voice will be the interface. Project out a bit where that's all put together, and I've got little, you know, she who will not be named whispering in my ear, uh, for AR, there may be things I don't do now on my phone because now I do them via that kind of augmented reality. And I've got some other thing that also works with my collection of tools. So my answer is, is the, I don't think it's going to change. 
I think the way and the dependence on our devices will be what changes. See, that, that's a fascinating take on it, because I think maybe that is the right evolution, right? Form factors tend to evolve. Computers are more svelte. They are better looking. They are more screen, less bezel than they've ever been. But they they have the same essential clamshell form factor for a laptop, uh, a, a flat piece of glass for a smartphone. I think you, you, you form factors might evolve to the function that they serve or the way that we actually carry them around, but it's the capabilities of them, right? Now, if you listen to the folks uh, in the investment community, they're debating right now whether it will be the smartphone eliminated for another on-body device or whether it's just going to be Apple eyeglasses, if you will, as a new augmented reality device that is then tethered to your smartphone, where all the processing horsepower comes from, that device will look the same. It'll just have radically more capability. Although I, I, like, I like Carl's idea, um, 3D projections, holographic images standing out on top of your device, not just within the piece of glass, but projected by the piece of glass. I think that's fascinating. I think the integrated into your head piece sounds appealing, except we really like watching movies and videos and stuff like that. So the screen is not going away. The other thing is that uh, I think AI will have gone so far ahead because right now you can't have a two-way conversation with she who shall not be named, right? You ask one question and then you ask another question and then you ask another question, but you don't have the kind of back and forth conversation you see in sci-fi from the 1980s. Well, I'll put a bow then on topic two and say, look, I think the interesting thing is this space where new stuff will appear and work with the existing stuff. And be it 3D projection, be it AR, be it eyeglasses, be it, you know, feetless or legless metaverse garbage, like whatever that's going to end up being, right? It's the next thing will be this other thing that we haven't quite envisioned yet that works with the existing slab of glass. Because I think uh, to a certain degree, we have figured out the form factor that generally works is a slab of glass <laughs> that has a camera on it. Uh, I agree completely. Nice. Nice. All right. Let's go to topic number three. We're going to talk about a headline that involves AWS in the news this week. And no, it's not the one about the outages. And no, it's not the one about how they don't keep your data privacy uh, at, at any level of priority or security. This one is actually very interesting in a good news way from the AWS guys. We're talking about the idea of digital twins in a very easily deployable format that AWS has partnered with some software companies in the industry to bring that concept to the mass market, right? So quick primer for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about on digital twin, imagine any system facility environment in the physical world that would also have a virtual representation in the digital world that would monitor and map not only its status and condition, but its location, its interaction, its behavior, its need for services, etc. The main industrial applications, if you think of this uh, in terms of the way that digital twins get used, think of a factory where you need to know not only 
what the building is and what's going on inside of it, but what is the present state and performance of every single object, system, device, et cetera, within that facility? You draw the wireframe, you integrate real-time 3D CAD graphics, overlay video images, and now you have what Hollywood has been faking for a bunch of years. You have a remote real-time eye into exactly what's going on inside a remote facility. But it doesn't stop there because now there's a business opportunity for MSPs. What do you guys think about this technology and this idea? All right, I'll go. I'll go because... First off, I got to acknowledge the, they called it Twin Maker. And it's like, that is just the funniest way, kind of name. I have this just vi- cartoon vision of stamping out twins in one of those Acme plants, right? Where it comes in one and out comes two. Like, it's just, just what, a, what a good name. So, this is one of those areas where I look at this and say, it only made sense to me when you start making it really easy to do. You, Ryan, you've been pitching digital twins for, for ages, and I wrestle all the time with, oh, okay, that sounds like a really cool idea, and I don't exactly know how to apply it. And the, mo- the moment you sort of said, okay, I can run kind of inventory stuff through, divide, like, like my list of things, and it will just then go forth and create it for me and manage it for me and keep the, all the inventory and keep the two in sync. All right, now I'm starting to get it because now it's a for me being my assembler rather than builder kind of model. I get it. I can start assembling things to this. Um, I continue to be intrigued by Amazon's approach of just giving you all of the building blocks to go forth and do builds. So this makes perfect sense to me that they would be one of the you know they would be one of the first, if not the first mover in this kind of space. Um, it's. For my typical IT service providers, channel listener, I look at this and say, I'm not sure it's quite there yet for end customer universal adoption, but I instantly say, like, there are a bunch of people that develop stuff that instantly have gone, yeah, I get how I can apply that with my clients. Well, and this is another example of Amazon having so much computing power that it is it's possible to think of new things that nobody thought of before. Combine this with TensorFlow and AI to the next level, and you can imagine, you know, we have airplanes and automobiles that are generating terabytes of data in real time that basically is unusable, (laughs) right, in any meaningful way. Imagine being able to actually analyze that in real time and say, okay, you know, this airplane made this decision and crashed. This may, airplane made this decision and went higher. This airplane made this decision and used less fuel. And then, you know, do that a thousand times in a second, and then the airplane makes the best decision. Uh, that's pretty cool, and that has great potential. And again, it's one of those things like, yeah, we can't do it today. We can only think about it, but we're an inch away, I think, and we're heading in that direction really fast. Well, and, and you think of it, Dave, because like, like you say, If I run an oil refinery, there is a room on the facility where you walk in and it looks like mission control at NASA. An entire wall of monitors visualizing every system and subcomponent in that environment and giving me real-time status updates. Which is cool if you happen to have an oil refinery that processes a few billion dollars a year of inventory. Setting up that kind of a control room is not that expensive. But you bring it out here into the real world and you think, well, that's a cool idea, not for the real world, not for us. But now 
you make it an, an app, basically, right? You, you use building blocks, you leave the data where it is, you draw in runtime systems, ERP, uh, sensor-based devices, real-time video overlays. You draw that all into a 3D wireframe, and then you can actually overlay, like think of the way that Zillow does a walkthrough in a virtual tour of a house. You can see the photographs and they're all stitched together. Think that environment for, but it, with real-time video that actually is aware, of not just, you're not just looking at it, you're monitoring the systems. Dave, this is where I think it goes over the edge into, uh, ooh, this could be cool for MSPs. Imagine that this is the platform for the next generation of an RMM. I'm not just getting a text message on a, a blinking light that says, system has an issue. System has an I'm not just looking at a single pane of glass that will give me some command line interface details about what a system might be doing. It's looking at the client's environment in real time, and I can see where the device is, what is around it, what is happening, what just happened, and I can not only monitor, but then remediate all of these things with real-time systems level control. That's cool. There's some product manager, hopefully listening to this pod, who just went, oh, my God, <laughs> because because I had like as, as you're describing it, I had not thought of that particular one. So, so, but it, this idea of using that to manage all the things right and to represent the physical space and the things within it and all of the individual items so that I can then do stuff with them. Yeah, that's intriguing, right? That, and, and can keep real-time information on all of that stuff and all of its needs. Yeah, that solves that I need to monitor and manage all of the things. And I can expand that into an even greater space of what all the things are. Um, now, it did reinforce my statement of somebody's going to need to make it more real for most service providers to be able to do something with it. But there is a subset who's going to immediately go, oh, I can do something today. Yeah, see, and that's the thing, right? You and I aren't going to build that system, but I know a lot of people who would use that system very aggressively. We just need somebody to do the, the stitching, the creating in between. Uh, what, what gets me on this one and my last word on this topic will be, um, this is what we've been saying for years. Managed service providers need to stop focusing exclusively on the Wintel stack of the traditional server storage network application, etc., and branch out into all of the connected things. Anything that touches your network is now fair game for you to monitor and manage and get paid for. Well, I have to quip. I have to quip as you say that to the guy who is entirely Mac. And I'm pretty sure you're also entirely Mac, right? <laughs> like it's, so you have to kind of laugh and go like, yeah, all you Intel people, like there's another group of us out there too. And by the way, that's just one small sliver of all of the things that need to come under management. Absolutely true. And, and that's where we get the unlimited upside to this opportunity. I think this is one of those emerging technologies. Like we said, I think two years ago, it showed up on our radar where we said neat, but not yet real right? But now we've gotten to a point where it went from concept through mega enterprise deployment to, hey, we've got a system in place where you could just appliance this thing 
and dot, 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 we're a step away from where this becomes something realistically available to a local MSP for their individual customers. Yep. Well, that will do it then. We've run out of time. So this is it for episode 142 of the Killing It Podcast. Thanks for tuning in to the Killing It Podcast. Please share with your friends and tell everyone to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and all the podcast places. Join us next week and help us keep killing it in the technology business.